Alexander Wales. And this is episode 21, World Building Social Systems. Part 1, Top Down. Right. This will probably be a two-part episode. So this one, we're just going to be talking about top-down world building. Why don't you go ahead and explain what that is? Okay. So in top-down world building, you basically have an idea of what you want to talk about. What kind of commentary you want to make on modern politics or on some aspect of identity or social science or something like that. And then you find some kind of analog and you make your story about that. So you start from this high level, you know, we're going to talk about being transgender. And so you find a, a social system or something that you, you want to talk about explicitly and you, you want to talk about uh, homosexuality or religion or corporatism or whatever and then you go and you decide that you're going to make a world that lets you talk about that sort of in a metaphorical way and so so you're you're basically starting from that viewpoint like you're saying okay I want to talk about wage slavery and so I'm going to I'm going to build from that perspective mm -hmm. whereas bottom up you make a rule and then you say, okay, what comes out of that rule? You, you start at the like that very low level, and you can you can do a mix of both. I'm not going to say that you can't, but I mean, you might come up with something explicit to start with, and you say, you know, uh, I want to talk about the evils of capitalism or the evils of communism in a fantasy setting, and then you also happen to add in some magic system or something like that that's you know just part of the setting, and as you go about exploring that magic system you realize that you're also telling the story about persecution of of people with special abilities or you're talking about the you know unfairness inherent to births like how people are born with certain abilities over others or things like that yeah so there's there's a very very common thing that that you see in science fiction because people really like like science fiction for social commentary mm -hmm. um, some people do some people are just in it for the ray guns and uh right, right. you know green skin space aliens or whatever but a lot of science fiction writers and a lot of science fiction moviegoers are in it for the, the sort of allegory. Yeah. So you get your, like, Brave New World or Fahrenheit 451 was a very... It, it wasn't about... I mean, it, it wasn't about censorship or it was... It, this is one of those death of the author things. Uh, <laughs> Ray Bradbury did not intend it to be a message about censorship. Right, it was the evils of television or something, right? Yeah, it was, it was about people's short attention spans, right? That no one is going to read books anymore because they have TV. And they're going to have these TVs that are on all four walls of their home so they can just, like, sit in their couch, watch TV. And have their all brain day melted just, by... Just absorb, yeah. Yeah, in this short attention span type of way. And he wrote this, for those of you who don't know, this book was written a long time ago. Yeah, 50s or 60s. So these books often are considered literature. We're going to have an episode at one point about the distinction between literature and speculative fiction. But literature like Fahrenheit 451 is science fiction, but it's considered literature in part because of its age, but also in part because, I guess, the social commentary, right? The fact that it is such a landmark book, especially also books like 1984. 1984 uh, is like the, the oppressive totalitarian government. Mm-hmm. And that's its driving focus, and the entire world is built to sort of highlight that and talk about it. This concept of new speak that we're going to, you know, alter our language so as to suppress certain thoughts. And the concept that with, with technology, the government's power to invade everyone's everyday life is going to grow to the point of dystopia. Yeah. 
And there's actually, it's, it's kind of interesting because people read it today and it, they sort of gloss over some of the world building stuff that wasn't plausible really at the time that it was, that it was written. Cause so they have these view screens that are in everyone's like bedroom and these view screens also function as video cameras, right. but they don't ever talk about video cameras and video cameras at the time were these huge things. And so this telescreen is a combination and having a camera that small at the time was sort of, it was science fiction. That's yeah. this is the, the setting that it was written in was like today we would write science fiction and, and come up with all sorts of technology that we might extrapolate might someday exist, but definitely don't in today's world. This is what they were doing back then. And it's, it's become not just hollowed ground, but like kind of a, a, a redeeming for a lot of people who don't aren't really into speculative fiction. It's kind of the redeeming value of science fiction that it can help you explore social situations and things like that with a future bent that reflects on a modern day. You know, talk about modern issues by extrapolating into the future. Yeah. And I think that the reason that uh, literary people love it so much is because literary people love allegory. Mm -hmm. I don't have a particular fondness for magical realism, which we've talked about before. But I think that they enjoy the social commentary for the same reason they enjoy magical realism, sort of striking at an issue from from an odd angle right. and get at it a little better. But yeah, uh, 1984, they, these, these view screens are basically the only bit of science fictional technology, really. Like, they don't have computers at all. They just have people listening in yeah. physically. And every everything else, but George Orwell needed this device to sort of get the point across about everyone being watched all the time. And so he invented these telescreens in, like, 1948 the sort of unimaginable technology to punctuate the thing that he wanted to get at. And then the counterpoint, or what's often today taught as the counterpoint to 1984 is Brave New World, which is about conformity and to some extent the secularization. It sort of rails against science in quite a few places. Um, everyone's yeah. born into, into these casts and it's test tube babies and people take all these pills to make themselves feel better and yeah it, it basically conflates science with unnaturalism and the hero at some point you know finds a pristine part of the world and it does the whole noble savage thing where people were happier in the pre-technological age the pre-organized society age kind of thing yeah which is another common refrain of science fiction um in a lot of older stories maybe still some new ones i haven't really read it that often nowadays but it was the idea of using the idea of what the future might be like to say that the past was better the biggest recent example is the movie avatar right yeah fern gully part two yeah and that is a, a wonderful example of top-down world building because it wasn't it, it wasn't like someone came and was like, okay, I'm going to invent all these rules, and then the story just naturally arises out of that. No, it was someone who wanted to make a distinct point about environmental catastrophe and military-industrial complex. And I mean, it was more ham-fisted than that. But right by wonderful example, I assume you mean it was a wonderful example of that type of story, and not a wonderful story. Yeah, yeah it was it was not a wonderful story. But when I'm dividing these up into top-down and bottom-up. Yeah, probably one of the most popular science fiction movies that hit the big screens in a while before the Star Wars things ratcheted back up anyway. And I think part of that was the visual effects. 
But I also think part of it is, again, that, like, it was selling this message that is, you know, very in vogue, especially amongst liberal audiences these days, of the military bad, corporatism bad, naturalism good, native oppression bad, that kind of thing. And so, like, you know, it's it's a way to tell a story that you want, and it doesn't have to be as heavy-handed or anvilicious as Avatar was, but it's definitely a way, when you're planning out your story, to decide what social issues you're going to tackle and build the story around them. Yeah. So some other examples, there's a Justin Timberlake movie called In Time. I don't know if you saw this. Yes. Everyone has a limited amount of lifespan that like shows up on their wrist and you have to work to get more and your lifespan is basically replaced currency. And this is not, I mean, that's, that's an interesting idea as a starting point, mm-hmm. right? If you were going to do bottom up, I think that that would work a lot better than how it did work in the film because in the film it's very much you know rich people are hoarding all the wealth and stuff Mm -hmm. and they just wanted i don't want to be uncharitable here but it felt to me like they just wanted to talk about wealth and income inequality yes there were things like that and and they built this conceit around it Mm -hmm. yeah there were a few aspects to the society where i felt like if this had actually happened, I don't think it would quite shape up this way. It might still be dysfunctional and, and dystopian, but I don't think it would come out quite this way. They're working too hard to make it parallel today's world instead of from the bottom up exploring what the consequences of these ideas would be on society. And as top-down movies go, I don't want to say that they're... I'm trying to think of what I would consider a good top-down movie. District 9? Yeah. Yeah. I love District 9. I thought that was a fantastic film. Yeah, yeah. But it is, I mean, it's not entirely about apartheid, but it's mostly about that. It tackles the us versus them idea in terms of apartheid, in terms of immigration, in many ways. You know, like, it's it's very much on the, the idea of race relations. Yeah. And I mean, it was made by a south african filmmaker in south africa which i think made the parallel a lot more clear mm-hmm. the slums of johannesburg are are basically you're replacing the downtrodden people in the slums of johannesburg with these aliens and it's sort of it's sort of used to sort of humanize them i guess but also to talk about some of the difficulties and show this transition but as far as world building goes it's very thin on a lot of a lot of the main stuff why this spaceship is there yeah i haven't watched the movie since it came out i really should because i want to i want to rewatch it with a rational lens which i didn't quite have back then when i first saw it i enjoyed the hell out of it i thought it was a great movie but there were a few things that bothered me obviously and one of them was i felt like the problem the aliens had would not continue past the I felt like there would at least be one culture on the planet who that saw a good that saw it as a good idea to treat the aliens well and invite them to their country and basically be like hey you know share your technology with us and you can be citizens or whatever maybe like that wouldn't have happened like maybe there would have been some conflict about that maybe there's a whole bunch of reasons why that didn't happen but I remember watching it and thinking like you know realistically speaking these aliens feel like I feel like these aliens are being treated way worse than they should be by the world at large not necessarily by individuals because i think individuals definitely would be that discriminatory but yeah 
top down because there was an idea that clearly they wanted to to talk about and they used science fiction setting to to do it in a great way yeah and i think the last one that i want to talk about before we talk about like how how do you successfully go about Mm -hmm. doing top-down world building um last one i want to talk about is x-men which is not i don't think is actually an example of top-down world building except that you have the x-men movies which are yes which you know someone says hey i want to talk about discrimination against gays and I'm going to use this world that exists as a vehicle to do that. It might have been... And then change things as necessary to make that sort of fit. It might have been more of a maybe a middle-out kind of thing. Yeah. I've talked before about how much I love Magneto's character in the movies. I feel like he is far and away the best part of all the movies that he's ever been in. And the fact that he transitions from a Jew in the Holocaust to a champion of gay rights essentially you know analogous uh, champion of gay rights because he knows what it is to be discriminated against it ties in beautifully well right because when he's talking about discrimination against mutants the parallel is doesn't have to be explicit it's so obvious that everyone gets it you mentioned the 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 joke in in the i think it was the second movie uh is the first the first one try not being a mutant was that it are you sure it was the first one i thought it was the second one when they were with Iceman's parents yeah, first one was Iceman. Mm-mm. No, no, first one was uh, Rogue. Yeah, it was Rogue and Iceman and the Fire Guy. No, go... that was the second one, buddy. Okay, you're probably <laughs> right. You are right. They escape the mansion because it was under attack, and they go to his house to, like for shelter temporarily, and he comes out to his parents. Yeah, but that that whole coming out scene there. Yes, was, yes, was very strictly an analogy to yes coming out as gay, and it was great. It was it was brilliantly done. Yeah, I thought it was very funny. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but at the same time, I'm like, you know, there are legitimate reasons for people to be afraid of mutants. Yeah, I think we've touched on this too, right? Like, yeah. um, not to say, you know, that that's it's the best way for a society to act towards mutants, but it's it's definitely less of a groundless fear. I don't think I'm being particularly brave by saying that fear of homosexuals is groundless and irrational and stupid. But yeah. for mutants, I think there's a little bit more of a justification to be like, you know, maybe we should pay attention to this difference in people. Yeah. So for what makes a good top-down movie? Yeah, or a story in general. Mm-hmm. District 9 was really great, and I liked it a lot. And I, I need to rewatch it, but I, I think it was it was a solid movie when I watched it the first time. Elysium was not yeah this Elysium was by the same director and same thing it was science fiction it was creator definitely wanted to tell a story about capitalism and the the one percenters or in this case the point zero 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 one percenters all living in a technological utopia in space while automation basically turned earth into a slave wage factory where no one really had any power or wealth at all and everyone was just working to themselves to death to get meager scraps and, you know, great topics to touch on. If you want to tell that story, go ahead. I'm all for it. But this particular movie was really poorly done in this case, I think. Like, even though it was preaching to the choir in my case, I felt like I was rolling my eyes out of my head the whole time I was watching it because there were just so many things that... To, to the movie's credit, it's purposefully bending things to an extreme. Like, it knows that it's bending things to an extreme when it's doing so. But I think that's the danger of writing a top-down story and trying to do it well. Because our world has plenty of extreme and moderate and in-between examples of, of social ills and social problems. And when you straw man 
it's not that this the straw man literally doesn't exist right like you can find people who literally will say you know i don't care if if you and your whole family starve as long as i get one percent extra off my taxes or something like i've met these people they exist but if you're building a story around the concept and you want to explore it you lose a lot if that's all that exists and in elysium that's really all that existed we had evil rich people for the sake of of evil no explanation as to why their wealth could not be shared or if there was any attempt to share the wealth or magical life-saving science like there was no indication that anyone was like oh we you know we would love to be able to have everyone have access to this cancer removing life-saving machinery but it works on unobtainium and you know we, we can't just give it away otherwise we'd run out you know something like that it just even throwaway lines like that would be enough to show that the top-down approach is not being used as an anvil to drop your idea on people. Yeah, and I, th I think this is one of the, the places where you have to be conscious of medium, because I think it's so much harder to do throwaway world-building lines to justify in a movie, mm -hmm. where, where you can't, you know, every, you know, if, if your movie costs $90 million to make, basically every minute of screen time is a million dollars. <laughs> And that's not unrealistic. It's it's not actually a million dollars for each minute of screen time, but it's a ton of money, mm -hmm. and and it's a ton of time on set. And then you're trying to trying to keep the audience engaged. And the more that you're adding in in complexity, you're, you might lose some audience. Mm -hmm. I think that it's so much easier to do that in like prose fiction when you can just like drop a whole scene in, and no one will be like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to bail out now. But yeah, Elysium was very, even if you take it as an analogy to sweatshop conditions in the third world and how the first world interacts with the third world, it's a very black and white portrayal of that. And some anvils need to be dropped, sure, mm -hmm. but you sacrifice something if you're going to be that heavy handed about it. Right. Being right is no excuse for bad art. Yeah. So in general, let's say that you have some social issue that you want to talk about, right? What are the ways that you get to a top-down approach? I don't know if you ever do like top-down mm -hmm. writing, but honestly, I can't say that I have. I feel like plotting is is probably my weakest aspect as a writer. Like one of the things I I love about my Pokemon story is that the I, I've got the plot in mind. It's really there. It's vivid, which is great for me. But generally speaking, I don't go into things with a plot in mind. I go into things with a character or setting or idea in mind and just kind of let it build upward so I've, i don't really have experience being like i want to tell a story about this and then working my way down to see how i would do that i think the closest thing to that i've done is when there are certain things that i want to do in a story that will touch upon social issues so for example in the pokemon story there's going to be a conflict of there's going to be a collectivist versus individualist conflict that's going to come up and I'm thinking about ways that I'm going to put that in the story, and what I want to obviously avoid doing is is make it too transparent and scene stealing. But what I want to do is is have characters that naturally exemplify the virtues of both, put them in the setting, and have them interact organically. And I think it's a, that, that that's what I would say is probably the first most important thing is that if you want to talk about something in in your story, it's probably going to have a conflicting side to it. Right, you're gonna have someone who either disagrees with it, or is on the opposite side of it, or believes in something very different from it that isn't compatible. If you 
can fully actualize that character as well and not just your mouthpiece for one thing or the other it helps a lot because then you you've got a much more organic interaction between the ideas that you want to talk about instead of having everything center on one or the other yeah what about you like what have you when have you like what, what do you do for top down really metropolitan man metropolitan man was me wanting to write a superman story that was more of what i wanted than i was getting out of superman i think most fan fiction that i've written has been that kind of thing right i like this concept but they're doing it wrong i need to make something better right there's a this kind of schlocky show on nbc called timeless and i am kind of halfway in the process of writing a fanfic of it and it's like these people are chasing this guy through time and he's trying to like upset american history and they're trying to fix it right you've mentioned this before it's very frustrating watching it so you've been i guess you've been feeling more and more inclined to do it yourself yeah because that seems like the perfect springboard to write about like what is america Mm -hmm. what is the nature of this america that you're trying to save right if if the bad guy goes back in time and he's trying to stop slavery from ever happening like 100 years early do you go and stop him because that slavery is part of american history right or you know there are all these moral conflicts that they don't explore and that in a way is top-down approach because i see so clearly the social issue this dynamic feels like it's meant to be built around but i think for the most part i do i kind of do from the middle I think it's usually I come up with an idea and then I think to myself, what are the natural stories that come out of this? And then once I find a story that I really like that I think says something, then I'll world build the rest of it around that. So like there's a story that's not out yet and might never come out, but it's about the technology is developed to capture people's brain states and sort of run simulations of them. Mm-hmm. And the story then is about this sort of fading celebrity starlet who uploads her mind and it, quote, leaks, unquote, onto the internet to bump her fame onto the advice of her manager. And it's sort of a parallel to like leaked sex tapes. Mm-hmm. And it's a way of talking about that and then like amplifying it because it's your mind and it's sort of about fame because you're, you're sort of giving yourself to your audience, and then all these people are talking about you and inspecting you and things like that. Right. And so that's very much a work of top-down world building, because if you want to talk about those things, you have to have certain constraints on your world so that any of that makes sense, right? Yeah, and this is a problem I think that a lot of people have sometimes with top-down world building. They have an idea for their story, and as they're writing their story about their idea, things start popping up that kind of derail things and make it so that they're like the perfect ending they have in mind to drive their point home starts to make less sense characters around the main character don't really have enough motivation or agency to feel real just overall the story starts to suffer for the purity or vigor of the idea that they want to communicate through their story right yeah and instead of like adapting to that they have trouble killing their darlings as it's as it's put they have trouble realizing that you know this scene isn't really necessary or this this speech isn't necessary or this is something that i i'm interested in but the story could use less of this is one of the reasons that i tend to write 
is one of the reasons I like to write fantasy more than science fiction. Mm -hmm. Because if you're writing a science fiction story and you say, okay, people have these brain states that can be captured by like fMRI or whatever, and then they build up this model of you and then it can be run in a computer and people can talk to you and interact with you and it's horrifying and whatever. You have that as your premise. There's so many other things, technological things, that come from that. Like, if, if, if the average desktop computer can run your brain, that changes everything about economics and intellectual property, and you have to use a hammer very liberally to get the world back into a shape where you want to talk about modern-day issues. Whereas if you do it in fantasy, you can just have some kind of mental power or whatever that works in the way that you want to talk about without all these knock-on effects. Mm-hmm. I mean, less of them. Brain states are not a great example, but if you're writing fantasy and you want to talk about digital rights management, you can add that into magic and then talk about it in this sort of from this awkward angle that illuminates more. Yeah, and it's a good distinction to draw between science fiction and fantasy in terms of which ones are more. I don't want to say amenable to certain ideas or issues. But I feel like they do have the strengths and weaknesses for tackling one or the other. Yeah. And maybe that's just a result of the ones that I've read. Speculative fiction in general is, you know, has that power of introducing new concepts to talk in metaphors. But I really like modern supernatural fiction that has the masquerade down, by which I mean people know about the monsters and the magicians and all the all the special creatures and beings that exist. Because it introduces that idea, in good ones anyway, it introduces that idea of like, what does society do with the existence of vampires and werewolves and witches and whatnot? Like, how do they, kind of like the X-Men thing, like how do they function as out or in or, or in the closet or how do they get representation if they need representation in government? How does law enforcement deal with them? The Anita Blake series is probably the first first modern supernatural series that I read that really delved into that kind of stuff and I loved it. And... I feel like that's done better with... I don't want to say it's done better with modern supernatural than other genres, but I feel like you have to do so much more work in a, in a, in a completely unique fantasy setting. Yeah. When if that's, if that's the kind of story you want to tell, you don't need to make a completely unique fantasy setting because those are things that we have you know more than enough background with and context with in our world. And introducing new third parties, new outsiders, so to speak, kind of blends in seamlessly with like the civil rights era and the fight for equal rights and, and social equality and all that kind of stuff. So you can either do the like re- retroactive uh, histor- historical thing where you talk about like maybe the first werewolf that, that was out was some U.S. president and like it kicked off a firestorm and people like were arguing in the streets about how monster as president and like what it meant for identity politics or whatever. Like just, you know, you can, you can do that kind of thing where you go back in time and, and readjust how things went. Or you can just say like modern time, bam, 2016, something comes up. Uh, and now how does the world deal with it? Yeah. I think that it, I think that science fiction is really good for talking about technological issues and that's almost where I'd end with it. I mean, if you want to talk about a surveillance state, then yeah, you're gonna, you're almost certainly gonna want to do a science fictional world, right? Mm-hmm. Minority Report was about the surveillance state to some extent, and there are these precogs 
And that is a really good way of exploring the surveillance state because you're not talking about these specific little details that just sort of get in the way, right? Because mm -hmm. if, if we're talking about modern surveillance state and we're talking about certain types of like thermal imaging that can look inside your home and is that an unreasonable search or do you have an expectation of privacy or we're talking about modern camera systems and that, yeah, they're all in public places or whatever. It's going a step further and then it's going in a direction that we're never actually going to have to face. And so in that way, it's better to talk about it. I mean, you, yes, you can make this distinction of are precognitives actually science fiction or are they fantasy? But generally, I prefer my, my sci-fi that's social commentary to be talking about technological things rather than, you know, uh, social things. Mm -hmm. Or at least things that can be related back to technological things, like things that are basically talking about technological things under different guise. Yeah. I think one of the reasons that psychic power is almost always considered sci-fi is because they tend to show up in modern or futuristic kind of stories, whereas you don't really get a lot of like old-timey fa fantasy settings that have like no real magic or anything like that but psychics like you don't really have a game of thrones setting with just psychics is the only special thing about it so psychics tend to show up in a kind of mix between modern or futuristic settings so it's more li more likely considered a sci-fi thing but it can go both ways like you know you can definitely have psychics as part of a whole modern horror supernatural kind of thing yeah there's a this Playboy story that was published 40, 50 years ago or something like that, where this man and this woman are in this society run by gays. And they are, they're meeting in secret at this, like, not a straight bar necessarily, but at this place where straight people go to meet up and have these covert clandestine affairs and stuff. And then they get captured by the gay police. And they got so many complaints about that because people are like, well, you know, why, why are you like showing, you know, this, this is like a horrible story. And then Hugh Hefner's response was basically, well, can you imagine if it were straight people who were in charge and gay people were persecuted, which was basically the entire point of the story. Right, right. Flip perspectives. And I think that's, that's the direction that I want top down to go. Mm -hmm. I want it to, I want to hit harder because it's coming from, it's coming from this place of metaphor an allegory that can be very, very powerful, specifically because it's crafted just to deliver this message or at least examine this topic. Yeah, and it's effective because it like sneaks past your radar. It's like satire. It gets it gets at your ideas in a way that you're not used to having them confronted. Yeah, so long as it's not getting to be a direct parallel, I guess. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I thought that the that scene in X Men where they he comes out as a mutant, I thought that was very funny. Mm -hmm. One of the only things that stuck out to me about from that movie, mm -hmm. but I thought it was very not ham-fisted necessarily, but it made the analogy a little too clear. I think I think it was definitely included for the sake of humor, that line in particular, right? But at the same time, I, I agree that they were definitely doing it to make it clear as, as they possibly could what the analogy was. I mean, I think the scene was good in part because it also included like the the fear yeah. in the fa from the family when he uh, reached out and and froze the 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 coffee or whatever it was in the cup, and it was such an innocuous thing, right? He just kind of reached out and they just wanted to show them what he could do, and he froze the cup. 
and its contents, and they they reacted like he just like grew a, a third head and started climbing on the wall. And not that that's not also a thing that that mutants could do is climb on walls, but I mean like you know as if he just froze one of them. And that's the point, obviously, that he could, and that's what that's what's scary about it. But it communicated both like why the scene in total communicated both, I think, like why people are afraid of mutants, but also the willful ignorance of certain people in in understanding that people are who they are uh, and accepting what people are, who people are. Yeah. I also thought it was one of the few moments in the X-Men movies as a whole that we get someone talking to a normal person Uh who's not like an authority figure or, you know, a corporate tycoon. You're right. Yeah. As boring as it might sound in terms of like, x-men deal with family problems like i mean that's that's what a lot of the, the episodes in the tv shows and cartoons were i think but I, I i would have enjoyed more of that in in the movies opposed to mutants punching and shooting at each other um yeah which was which was fun enough in, in, in some of them but not not others yeah so um do you have any tips for for top down yeah besides the idea of actualizing individuals doing your best to 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 model what someone who disagrees with the concepts you want to tell your story about. Uh, this kind of is, is a principle of rational storytelling, right? Where you don't want... It's not that you don't want good guys and bad guys. You can have good guys and bad guys in your story. You can have good and evil, quote-unquote, people in your story. But you want conflicts to arise from perceivable discord and values, not just because he's good and he's evil. Therefore, they must fight, right? Yeah. So that's, I think, the first thing that I would say is is what I would advise anyone who who has an idea for a top-down kind of story that they want to talk about if there's some social concept or political concept or moral concept that you want to talk about in your story make sure that you include a character of the opposite ideology they don't have to be a good guy if you don't want them to be but like at least somewhat make them sympathetic enough that they can be real people don't make them just the worst example of that thing because you're going to have a harder time I think convincing people who disagree with you, you're going to turn people off in your story. Your story is going to suffer for it, I think. Yeah. I mean, people should be driven into conflict by their values. Yeah. So Avatar definitely did not do this. Every, I'm pretty sure just every single bad guy in that movie was like puppy kicking levels of evil. Yeah. So I think one of the big things is if you're doing the top down approach, you're taking a, a map to a territory and you're using that map for a different territory. And the real key is finding the proper metaphor. And that's that's very difficult to do. Right. And it it depends on specifically what you want to talk about. And so, like, if you want to talk about nuclear proliferation and mutually assured destruction and things like that, finding a territory that maps to that is, is difficult unless you want a different, like, world-ending power. Right. Although I've seen that done very frequently. That, you know, there's some doomsday device, and then they use that doomsday device to talk about the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Kurt Vonnegut does that in... Cat's Cradle? Cat's Cradle, mm-hmm. yeah. Cat's Cradle has Ice-9, which would, like, freeze all the oceans and stuff, and the military develops it just... They developed it to freeze over swamps, so they cross them easily. And it's, you know, it's Vonnegut, so it's not... It's sort of fanciful right. in, its, in its way, but... Yeah, you can talk about time travel proliferation. You can talk in, like, a fantasy setting about... Demons. You can talk about demons. Uh, There was one particular hack used in Two-Year Emperor that they talk about very much like it's a 
like it's a nuclear weapon. Like it's the secret that they need to keep from other people as soon as it's discovered because it would destroy the world if, if anyone could do it. Right. Finding that new territory to map onto and then making it different enough so that it's interesting and sort of disconnects from that specific talk mm-hmm. about the issue while still being recognizable. Because presumably if you are doing this, you want people to get the metaphor that you're driving in. Right. You don't just want to go... You don't want them to like be thinking about it weeks and weeks later and they're like, oh, they were talking, you know, they were talking about this uh, political issue. That makes sense. <laughs> I remember um, Morrowind did something like this. The video game Morrowind, Elder Scrolls 3, did something like this that I really enjoyed where... And they were, you're doing character creation, and, and the person as soon as you step off the boat, this this guy uh, starts asking you questions to see what kind of person you are. And one of the questions they ask is like, the king has mind mages, you know, in his employ, and they go around basically, you know, talking to people innocuously and seeing if they are enemies of the state. And it's just, basically says, you know, how do you feel about this? And there's some options you can choose from. One of them is like, you know. It's perfectly fine if you have nothing to to hide, you have nothing to fear. Another option might be like, you know, it makes me uncomfortable, but I guess whatever, whatever the safety of the people is more important than my individual feelings. Or And the third one is, you know, no, this is a terrible breach of privacy. My mind is, is my own. Things like that. And even as, I don't know what I was, I was like maybe 12 or 13 or something. Like even at that age, I recognized what it was talking about. Using the idea of mind mages and psychics to talk about, Privacy in modern times and yeah. a surveillance state and 1984 kind of stuff. Yeah, the sort of post 9/11 mm-hmm. type mentality. Yeah, if you are trying to write a story that is about one of those issues, you want to find something. You want to find the right story for it. Right. Uh, don't just land on the first thing that you come across. And to some extent, I would suggest not doing top down at all. Mm-hmm. Just do do a sort of middle approach. Or start from bottom up and find the natural stories. But, you know, maybe there's something that you're really passionate about and you really want to talk about. Then I think you're fine to, to go gung-ho on that. Right, For right. me, there are lots of, there's so many things that I want to talk about that it's not that hard for me to find one of them. Mm-hmm. And these are hard things to do. I don't, want, I don't think anyone should be dis- discouraged if they're trying to do them and struggling with them. Finding a good metaphor is, is difficult for a lot of issues. The world is a complex place. Nothing maps. Very few things map one to one directly from one thing to another. You know, like the idea of, for for example, the idea of the psychics versus state surveillance. One could say that state surveillance could have checks and balances in place to make sure that sensitive information is not being misused and has like lots of oversight and blah de blah de blah. But things that are very idealistic and probably would not actually happen if they were implemented. And I don't believe do happen if implemented but you could you could make the argument that like if done well enough maybe it's an okay thing in certain circumstances whereas for psychics very difficult to have any kind of checks and balances when it's individuals who have the power to look into people's minds then tell other people what they what they read there yeah but you know you can you can try again you can try to come up with ways to justify the the metaphor and make it more equivalent if you if you work at it it takes time it takes effort same with the modeling people from both sides thing. Like if you if you're having trouble with it, find someone that you're on somewhat friendly terms with, or just you know go on Reddit or something and, and ask in a subreddit with people of the other ideology. Say you know I'm writing a story about a character that believes this and this thing. I'm not really familiar with it. Let me know if this sounds okay. You know get get feedback on the character that you're modeling. 
so that you can make sure that it, it properly represents the people that you're talking about or the ideology that you're talking about. Yeah, I've got this Hermione Draco slash fic that I'm writing, and it's it is so much about race relations. Mm-hmm. So I went on some like white nationalists or white white supremacist message boards, mm-hmm. and I was like, okay, how do these people actually think. talk slash think? And then I just used some of that stuff for like Draco Malfoy talking about like the gaps in test scores between Muggles and full-blooded wizards. Mm-hmm. Or muggle-born, full-blooded wizards. Do your research, because uh, especially if you're explicitly trying to talk about a specific social issue, you want to know what both sides are are saying, even if you think one of them is very wrong. Mm -hmm. So I think that does it for top-down world-building for now. Next episode, we'll talk about bottom-up, emergent conflicts and and ideas that, that come about from writing the story, mapping out the characters and their interactions. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned after the outro music for another book recommendation. Hope you join us next week. Hey everyone, today's book recommendation is going to be for The Long Walk by Stephen King. We talked a lot about top-down stories being about political or social issues that the author wants to explore through their fiction, but that's not the only form they can take. Top-down storytelling can also result from a central premise that has less to do with any particular message or idea, and more to do with the theme you want to evoke or the plot you want to explore. Stephen King is a master of this, often so laser-focused on the theme or tone, or what-if, that his world-building is left to a bare minimum. Sometimes that what-if is, what if a whole town got slowly turned into monsters but retained their sense of self throughout? Other times that what-if is, what if a husband and wife go to a cabin for some kinky sex but he has a stroke while she's handcuffed to the bed? The Long Walk is probably my favorite of these, in part because of how simple it is. What if a hundred boys had to walk for as long as they could, with the last one standing winning a prize and everyone else getting killed? King could have spent pages and pages talking about the dystopian state that America has turned into with such a grisly game as a celebrated national event. But he doesn't care about any of that, and through the power of his writing and characters, soon neither will you. All that matters are these hundred young men who, over the course of a few exhausting, endless days, will walk themselves to death, side by side, knowing that only one of them will survive, knowing that it's better not to form any bonds with their competitors, but helpless not to. The Long Walk was written all the way back in 1979, predating both The Hunger Games and its inspiration, Battle Royale, for death game stories. It's not for everyone, but I personally love the book, and recommend it to anyone interested in seeing how an author can get away with as little world building as possible, focusing the story with a razor focus on just the idea they built their plot around. If you want to give it a listen, head on over to www.audibletrial.com rational to get a free 30-day trial and book credit, or check out the link in the show notes to buy the novel. Thanks for listening.